Welcome all to another episode of the MusicCast podcast uh, today or tonight, depending on when you're listening. Marissa and I are joined with Heidi Whaleson. Heidi, thank, for, thank you for sitting down and chatting with us via Zoom. We appreciate it. Glad to be here. And uh, Heidi, I was wondering if you could, so I'm looking at the questions that we all kind of store up and save and um, Marissa is the one that initially reached out and she has, I was very curious for this interview because she said that you had mentioned in your email correspondence back and forth with her that you are not a musician or a music educator, um, but you find yourself in the opera field. So I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a rundown of how you found yourselves in the opera field if you are not a musician or a music educator. Okay. Well, I'm actually, I'm an amateur musician, so that's sort of fair. I play the viola da gamba. Um, but um, actually, I, I went to college um, as an English major pre-med, um, and the pre-med thing uh, didn't end up working out. And so I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa teaching English as a second language. And I came back after that looking for a job. And the job that I got was um, writing educational materials for the Metropolitan Opera Guild, um, where the education department of the Metropolitan Opera is situated. It's, a, it's an ancillary um, organization. And so I, was, I went to the opera every night, basically. I got free staff standing room. And I had always loved music and loved opera, and I would, grew up with it. And I, you know, I took flute lessons and did all that sort of stuff, but I had never, it had never occurred to me that it would have anything to do with what my future was. Um, but you know, after going to the opera, in standing room, in staff standing room at the Met, um, like every night for a couple of years, um, I uh, I left that job and became a freelance writer, a feature writer about music. Um, and this was in the early '80s, and um, I did lots of uh, you know per personality profiles and feature pieces about uh, you know all kinds of different sort of music um, areas, orchestras, chamber music. Um, opera, obviously. And then I got into criticism because um, a colleague uh, invited me to write some reviews for the New York Post of all things, um, which was kind of a riot because I had to, uh, that was that was in the old days when you had to, you know, call up and, you know, it was like, get me rewrite. And you would, <laughs> I, I would be, uh, you know, after my, after seeing my concerts, I would, you know, call on the phone and get some um, copy editor on the other end of the phone and have to spell every single word. And uh, so that was sort of the beginning of my uh, writing criticism. And then I was, um, I got in touch with the Wall Street Journal, which had just started a, um, a culture, a dedicated culture page um, and started writing features for them and uh, gradually segued into writing more about opera and um, actually reviewing opera. So it was just, um, you know, it was kind of a, a, a steady, but um, perhaps unconventional progression. But uh, considering that I went to college thinking that I was going to be a doctor, um, it was actually, you know, turned out a little differently. Do you remember, I'm always, so I'm a, my major was saxophone. So if you go anything prior to X amount of time were not acknowledged as real instruments. So opera was like, <laughs> I, missed, I missed that boat and I missed full orchestra boat. Like I rarely ever show up in that venue. And opera to me used to be the thing that I wasn't terribly interested in. And now I've accepted that it's the thing that I don't feel smart enough to understand as much as I want to. Um, so I'm always curious when people find themselves in the opera. Do you remember like your first introduction to it and why that's where you found that passion in terms of like, what's the first opera that you really went oh this is awesome well i can i can i can absolutely pinpoint that um and but I, but i'll go back my my parents were big opera fans and they used to listen to the saturday afternoon broadcasts and we have this sort of story in my family my my um my father was was in the uh was in the air force in the 50s and they were living out in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And my mother had to listen to the Saturday afternoon broadcast, but the only place she could hear it was in the car. So she would sit out in the car um, on these like snowy days in Cheyenne, Wyoming and listen to the Saturday afternoon broadcast. So this is like, you know, this is sort of in my family, but you know, and I went to the opera, they would take me and we went to see Boheme and Traviata and like, you know, all that sort of stuff. And 
Um, and, and I didn't, you know, I liked it fine, but it didn't like, it never really connected with me. Although I, you know, I did, there were parts of the, you know, episodes in the music that I would, you know, that I would really love, but, you know, having to read the libretto and understand the story and all that sort of background stuff, you know, it just like, you know, it was fine. And I was really more into popular music and Joni Mitchell and stuff like that. But when I got to college, um, I went, I went to Yale, I was an undergraduate at Yale and I went to a performance of The Marriage of Figaro that was done in the, it was the School of Music did the performance in a small, uh, small theater called Sprague Hall. And they did it in English. And I thought that was the most brilliant thing I had ever heard in my life. Suddenly the opera was in English, so I could understand it um, because my, uh, my German is limited and my Italian is um, opera Italian. Um, and, it was so theatrical. It was so immediate. It was so real. This was this was theater, sort of to the nth degree. And I always loved theater, but having you know adding the musical element to it that and that you could understand it was just so such an extraordinary experience for me that I was you know I was kind of converted on the spot to not just sort of like little bits of operas that I really um, where I really enjoyed the music to actually appreciating opera as a, as a theatrical, totally immersive experience. And um, it was that, it was that Figaro at the School of Music in English. So I think that segues to a lot of, um, of our other questions, but I want to start kind of with your book, um, Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, which I just finished reading and I thought it was incredibly insightful and compelling and, um, I think it's interesting that it's it's history, but you get sucked in to this <laughs> narrative that's happening. It was great. Um, but it kind of details the rise and fall of the New York City Opera. Um, can you discuss a little bit about the state of opera um, and we'll stay before COVID-19 um, and some of the overarching challenges that these these arts organizations face? Well, the what I really came to understand when I did the research for the book um, was really the, you know, the, the economic proposition of opera is just like, you know, hugely problematic. And it's become more problematic um, as the years have passed. Um, there's just this basic underlying structural problem. I mean, opera is the most expensive of all the performing arts. And um, as you might've noticed my little um, sort of, oh, what is the word you use? Like it, it you know, the little quote at the beginning of the, you know, at the beginning of the book was that, you know, the only thing that's more expensive than opera is war. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, that's might be a little extreme, but in fact, um, it's very expensive. And, you know, these opera houses have enormous overhead costs in terms of theaters, in terms of labor. And what you, what you're looking at is the gap and this is the case of, of any nonprofit, but particularly in terms of performing arts institutions, is the gap between um, what you can, how much money you can make at the box office, and how much money it actually costs you to put on your show um, or to put on your season. And like back in 1966, there was this team of economists that identified something called the income gap, which was that very gap between those two things. And what they posited, um, and this is back, their names are Baumol and Bowen, and this is back in 1966, they said that the gap was going to grow exponentially over the years because what it cost you to put on the opera would always grow at a greater rate than how much you could charge for the tickets. So that gap was going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And sure enough, that is what it has done. So back in, you know, back in the good old days, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe, you know, you were looking at so 60 percent of your of your basic, um, you know, what it costs you to you know, put on your operas was covered by your tickets and 40 percent was um, was philanthropy. Now, if you're lucky you get 20% box office, 20%. Now the Met, the Met is doing better. They have, they have a lot more seats. They have a lot more, you know, but, and, and so their, their number is perhaps not as extreme as that, but most of these opera companies, the, the amount of money that has to come from philanthropy is, is phenomenal. 
So as your box office becomes small, a smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of what you can get to put on your, you know, put on your shows, you have to start looking at, well, who's, who is this for? I mean, who are we putting on these offers for? And if it's not just, you know, for the people who can pay for the tickets, it's got to be for, you have to, you have to raise money from somewhere else in order to make it viable. Um, it's, you, you have to think about your product in a whole entirely different way. And the other piece of that, of course, is that these, these overhead costs, there's a, there's a built-in lack of flexibility. And this was something I wrote about a lot in the book in terms of the, the union contracts that were set up in a particular way to go, um, to work in a particular way. And, you know, if you, if you came into a, a situation where, well, guess what? We don't have enough people buying tickets and we have far too much product um, to, but we can't do fewer performances because we have to pay our union, you know, pay our union contracts. Um, what do you do? Um, if you have a theater that's you know, 4,000 seats and you're supposed to be, you know, and, and you, and it's set up so that you put on 250 performances a year, but you can't, you could only sell tickets to maybe like 150 performances a year. What do you do? You've got that theater. What do you do with it? So that, um, that lack of flexibility is a problem. And then you have basically your changes in, you know, in arts consumption and the kinds of things that the way people buy tickets, they don't buy subscriptions anymore. I mean, some, some, times they do, but not as much as you used to. You don't get all that money up front. You don't have all that, um, that sh you know, sure, um, the fact that people will have bought five, you know, five of your shows over, over the year. And you have to, and if they're not doing that, you have to spend extra money in order to sell them those individual tickets. So there are just a ton of different, uh, different issues, um, that exist within this basic structural, um, uh, well, structure that is, that is an opera company. And to me, that's like, you know, that's really the biggest problem. It's, you know, it's a bigger problem even than, you know, any of the other more sort of ephemeral or even sort of artistic questions about which, which are something else and something that, you know, obviously have to be dealt with. Um, like, you know, who's your audience? Um, what should we be putting on for them? Um, who's the right person to be in charge of this? Um, but, you know, when it gets right down to nuts and bolts, how, um, how opera is put on and how it's paid for is, you know, is your basic problem. And that is an issue that even pre-COVID, um, opera companies all over the company, all over the country were really grappling with. Sorry, I realized I was muted. Um, when you, so when you mentioned that uh, companies were grappling with how it's consumed, and when we talk about that, I do, you know, the big the big thing now is streaming. And even before the streaming, I always remember I'm a big movie goer, and I always remember when I go to the movies before it, they have different companies that will do like a one night only ticket, and they perform an opera live in a movie theater, and you get to watch these things, and they'll do classic movies or they do operas. What are the what are the considerations or have there been large scale considerations to looking at these different mediums? Because I know that inherently not being in the theater is it's, it's automatically less than in those certain regards, but what are some of the considerations that have been attempted to be made on that front for like how it can be consumed? Well, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of media and that, and this has been like in the, in the time of COVID um, the embrace of the digital media has just has you know mushroomed it's, it's just it's been phenomenal the different kinds of things that um that have been done um but even before that you had the metropolitan opera uh, for example when peter gelb became the general director of the metropolitan opera one of the first things that he did was he made he made a new deal with the the orchestra and the other um, unionized employees, which was a, a a huge change in what the media agreement was because it used to be that you had to pay all those people upfront to do any kind of media exploitation at all, and he he re, renegotiated that contract so that. Um, they ended up getting a piece of whatever, you know, whatever benefit came out of that. So he was able to create all this new media 
um, product around the Metropolitan Opera. So you had the HDs where um, they, you know, put these, uh, they, they um, simulcast these operas into movie theaters. And for a lot of people into, you know, back in 2008, when that was first announced, you know, people thought like, oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, who's going to do that? Nobody's going to go sit in the opera, you know, in, in a movie theater and watch the opera. Well, it was hugely successful. And there were plenty of people all over the world who were interested in doing that. And it became a nice little uh, profit center, nothing just sort of, you know, nothing huge, but, you know, um, significant. And they also, as a result of that, created this huge backlog of, um, of digital content so that when the, um, you know, when the pandemic came down, you had the Met doing those free live opera streams every single night, which definitely kept the Met in the forefront of, um, you know, of cultural institutions um, still making contact with not only with their um, their old audience, but with a whole new audience of people who, you know, who were interested in seeing it. And I mean, I, I kind of like the, um, the operas in HD. I haven't been to one in a while because I'm, as a, as a um, privileged person, I can just go to the Met and see it live and hear it in the theater. And that is a very, very different experience um, to hear that acoustic sound live. But I know a ton of people who, you know, who don't live near here, um, who are perhaps a little older and like, you know, don't want to go and sit in a great big opera house. So they'll go sit in the movie theater. Um, and they love it. My sister, my sister, who's, you know, I mean, she's not that much older than I am, but she lives in Philadelphia. And I said to her, you have to go see Eurydice, which was the new, the world premiere. Well, it was a New York premiere, but it was a new piece. It was just done at the Met this, um, this past couple of weeks. And I said, this is a really great piece. You'll really like it. And she said, oh, I'll go see it in my movie theater. And she went and saw it in her movie theater in Chestnut Hill. And she's, and she loved it. She's going back for the second time, you know? So you know, in terms of being a, um, in, in terms of being a, a way for people to, you know, to consume this, um, the, you know, the whole digital and um, that kind of media has been, you know, has been really great. I'd be curious too, and I know that this is a kind of a smaller trickling of information, but I would always be curious to see what, how many people, when they are in a vicinity that has an opera house like the Met would take advantage of it because they had seen something in a movie theater because that very people very well might not even think to try and see something in New York because it's not something they would have done. But then if they took a chance and saw something in a movie theater near them, then it might become this, this like blossoming interest that they would take advantage of when they would actually travel somewhere. So I'd be very curious. I don't know if there's any way to track that at any point. And I'm sure that the pandemic didn't help that, but I would love to see, that kind of element. It would be it would be interesting to know. Um, I I don't know if the you know if the Met um, keeps numbers like that or you know, like has that kind of information. Um, but you know they've certainly made a lot of friends um, over the pandemic um, with these free those free nightly streams. Um, you know people became you know there there were stories there was the there were these two ladies who watched it every night like for a year during the pandemic, <laughs> you know, they were, I mean, they were met, they were, they were met fans anyway, but, you know, they just decided that that was, you know, they were, they had this completest thing going and they just watched it every night. So I, I certainly think that the, you know, the accessibility of the movie theater and also seeing it, you know, being able to see opera, you know, on, you know, on your computer, um, is certainly a way to lure people into the house. Um, and, you know, nobody has yet figured out um, how to really monetize the whole digital side of it. Um, you know, and we can talk about, we can talk about what opera companies did during the, during COVID in terms of digital, because it was uh, phenomenal and so, so creative and so many different things. But, um, and I'm, you know, I'm happy to, you know, tell you more about all the things that I've I've seen, but in terms of monetizing that so far, um, I don't think that it's become, uh, you know, a major part of the revenue stream. 
I will say if it's any console, I teach a music and media class and we talk about it's more like modern music history and goes to film scores. And when we get to Lord of the Rings, we talk about Wagner's influences and stuff like that. And I have I have several alumni that sent me links to the nightly streams mm -hmm. because that was their first exposure to it. And they're like, did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this? So there we had a handful of children from our area that were all about the nightly streams and they couldn't believe that it was there. So it, that is so great. great. That is so great to know. Yeah. Cause um, yeah, I did. I heard a, you know, a lot about that of people saying, Oh, I just, I'd never, I'd never seen an opera before. I was so excited to see this. This was so great. Um, um, thinking before we move too far away from this, I studied abroad in Vienna uh, when I was doing my undergrad and um outside of the state opera house they had often a projector that was streaming what was happening inside people would bring blankets and picnics and set up but also that that was very woven into their culture like people would come to class the next day talking about the opera the way our students come to class talking about the football game um and I know also in your book, you comment on the discrepancies between what we see in American opera versus the European um, opera houses. Can you just comment on that a little bit? Um, the, some of the similarities and differences um, between things like the funding and the um, economics behind why, or, or even the culture behind why we see those differences. Well, the, the main thing has to do with the fact that most of the European opera houses are funded by the governments. So you have you can you can sell your tickets, but you can sell them for a, a much lower price. You don't really have to worry about, um, you know, sort of making the, you know, making a certain budget, though. They, I mean, they have to do that. But the uh, the governments fund these opera houses. It's part of the patrimony. It's part of the culture. And, you know, like, I mean, I went I, for the one and only time that I went to Bayreuth, um, you know, the, the house of Wagner um, in Germany. And, you know, it was interesting because it's like the it's the federal government and it's the local government and it's the state government. And it's like, you know, like five different sort of layers of government, all sort of like, you know, happily funding this opera house. Um, and so as a result, not only do you not have to worry about money quite as much as you, um, you know, you do here, but you also don't have to really worry about offending your audience. And which is one of the reasons that, you know, like American opera houses tend to be so much more conservative because you have, you have an older sort of, you know, set in its ways kind of audience. And you don't want to just like go too far out on a limb because not only will you lose the people who are buying the tickets is you'll lose the people who are, who are paying, you know, to, to, to fill up that income gap as, you know, as philanthropists. So um, that's, you know, that's a really major difference, I would say, between, you know, the American um, sort of approach to opera houses and, you know, the European one, in addition to the fact that, and though, you know, I, I don't know that this is, um, this is as much the case anymore. You know, of course, it used to be that there was this feeling in Europe that, um, that these, you know, operas and orchestras and stuff like that were, were a part of life and people grew up with them and they, you know, they understood that they were part of their, they were part of their culture, whereas in America, perhaps not so much. Um, you know, I don't know if that's in fact true anymore. It may not, it may well not be. I mean, with the globalization of culture and, you know, popular culture and like, I don't know what, how young, younger people in, you know, in Europe, um, interact with um, high cultural institutions anymore, if it's that much different. Yeah, I was just, I mean, of course, I was over there studying as a music student with a bunch of other Americans who, of course, wanted to take advantage of the three euro standing room tickets exactly. every night. But yeah. Um, yeah, Kev, why don't you ask what you're going to ask? No, you're good. I'm sorry. I was, I was nodding with you. I was letting you do your thing. Do you want me to keep going, Russ? Is that I what do, yes. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so kind of gearing the conversation back towards the U.S. side of things and knowing that we kind of had a little bit of a decline and then we had the pandemic, What? where do you feel like opera finds its future 
and we can, I think it's easier to keep it more national rather than global. Cause that's a whole other ball of wax. But if, um, where do you, where do you think that we find our, our future in opera as we're moving out of the pandemic, we're hopefully going back to a little more normal and we're kind of reestablishing an area that was pretty hit pretty hard, not just opera, but arts in general were hit fairly hard during this time. So we're all kind of rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- I think, I mean, I would like to, to talk about what the opera companies did during the pandemic, yeah, because I think that, you know, I think that that actually does sort of um, segue into that question of what the future is. I mean, these opera companies realized, um, they realized right away that they just, it was very important not to go dark and that they had to maintain their relationships with the audience that they had and to, you know, possibly find audiences where they had not had them before. Um, And so they created these, you know, incredible, um, you know, different kinds of, you know, of digital things. There were, I mean, there was, you know, the Met streams, obviously, but that was like, you know, that was older, that was older stuff. Those were stage performances um, that had been, you know, had been captured, but were originally, you know, created for the stage and were just like, you know, it's, you know, is one removed. But then you've got all these opera companies that's, well, not a lot of them, but a few who started actually creating content that was specifically for film. So you had, you know, the Boston Lyric Opera, which um, created James Dara, created this um, film on about Philip of of Philip Glass's fall of the House of Usher that was kind of um, it, which integrated the fall of the House of Usher with this story about an, an undocumented young woman who comes from uh, Central America and you know gets lost in the system. Um, and that was sort of doubled up. And also, and that that piece was not done with any live actors. It was done with like claymation or something like that. I mean, it was just, it was nuts. And then there was, you know, like um, who was a BLO also, I think created this um, sort of opera uh, soap opera series of eight different episodes that were filmed, you know, this sort of ongoing story where they had, um, they had, opera singers who were singing, but they had actors on film. Um, and that was very cool. And then you had people um, who were creating short, um, you know, t- t- short little films, like, uh, you know, 15 minute films that were built around particular arias or particular pieces of music that were, you know, were made for film. Um, and you had uh, with, and, as, as collaborations with filmmakers so that the film and the opera were like, you know, were one idea just as if, you know, you would make a film and you had, um, you had zoom operas. Those were interesting, you know, where you had people in different, um, different places trying to coordinate over zoom, uh, things that were written specifically for that. Um, you know, so that was really, these were really sort of remarkable, um, remarkable innovations. And one of the things that um, these opera companies discovered was that a lot of people really liked this streaming stuff. Um, and they really liked, uh, and, and they were, and there were some opera companies that filmed performances for, for people who couldn't go into theaters. And they found that they had, um, they had a lot of sort of like older people or like people who are not so mobile who were just thrilled that they could, you know, they could watch these performances um, streamed. So, you know, and and there were opera companies who found that they suddenly had audience members who were, you know, like thousands of miles away from where they were, who could see the things that they were doing and were very interested in their particular, uh, you know, their particular kind of performance. And the, one of the other things that happened was that you got a lot of um, people writing writing pieces specifically for film, and these are now you have um, actual living composers um, and writing pieces that are about um, something that they are concerned about today. So you know, opera being a particularly um, a, a, an art that's very um, well. 
let's say traditional and just in, certainly in terms of how it's, you know, how it's produced in this country that you have, you know, you have a, an opera house that puts on, um, you know, five different titles and um, they're all written in the 19th century by you know, like dead white men. All of a sudden you have this new interest in, you know, people who are writing operas today and, and they're all alive and quite a few of them are not men and quite a few of them are not white. So there's, I think that the pandemic really kind of threw open the floodgates in a way to creators and producers and performers who were not your sort of typical, um, you know, people and stories and, um, you know, other things that you see on an operatic stage. And I think that the interest in that and the understanding um, on the part of opera companies about the kinds of things that you can put on and how, how much more you can expand what you put on your stage and what you offer um, to your audience, I think is something that will, um, that will endure. I, I don't think that we can, though, I mean, I, I should probably, you know, I, I looked at the first bunch of um, um, schedules that came out um, after the, you know, after the pandemic um, sort of lockdown idea had sort of gone away and people thought, okay, well, now we can go back into theater. And so what are we going to put on? Well, what are we putting on? Like we're putting on the Barber of Seville. It's like, why are we putting on the Barber of Seville? Well, it's because you know, if we think that you know people are gonna uh, are gonna be slow to come back, and we're not really sure, and so we want to put on something that we know has a lot of audience appeal, and we're but you know, it's not the only thing. And um, the Metropolitan Opera in the past, in the course of two months, put on two operas by living composers that were like written in the last couple of years, and including the first opera on the Met stage ever written by a black composer and black librettist. So, you know, that kind of tells you something. Um, you know, Michigan Opera Theater is putting on Anthony Davis's Malcolm X opera in the spring. Um, people are sort of starting to think differently about what these institutions are, what they should be performing, who they should be performing for. Um, and I think you know, I think that this is a really, really hopeful sign. I think that the pandemic really offered um, a lot of institutions the opportunity to sort of sit back and say, okay, like, you know, what are we doing and who are we doing it for? Um, which is a question that I think um, arts institutions fail to ask themselves often and seriously enough. You think... Um are, are we likely to see, or, and we might already be seeing it, are, are there becoming established troops of performers that are strictly online media or um, in a live streaming capacity where, like, will we have these two different venues that you can go? Will we have our, our smaller live streamed type of performances and then our, our larger opera house performances as well. And they'll kind of mix and match what they do. Or do you think we'll more likely just see the, the normal hubs for opera diversify what they're doing and how they're doing it? I would say the latter. I don't think that anybody's going to really sort of come up with a sort of, you know, opera, you know, a, a company that's entirely opera for the movies. I think one of the things that, one of the other things that you know came out of the pandemic was that people really missed being in the live performance uh, experience in the live performance space and the live performance with other people, um, you know, sitting in the audience and you know listening to listening to um, performances in real time. So, yeah, I, I don't really, I don't think that that's, you know, that the the opera movie as a, you know, as a genre is going to be something sort of over, you know, like an off by itself. Um, but I think that it's, I think it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a way to do it. It's a way to get it out there. It's a way to, um, you know, experiment. And I think that it will, I think it will continue. Um, I, you know, I certainly hope so, because there have been some very interesting things that, you know, that were done. Um, just to follow up with some thoughts and experiences, 
I know, um, so Kevin and I both actually are from just north of Philadelphia in the Bucks County area. And, um, you know, so we're very lucky that we can hop into the city when, when we want. Um, but I'm currently out in Bloomington, Indiana, and um, the, the IU Opera Theater put on um, the Magic Flute as their first opera of the season. And I was there on opening night and it really was, it was just like the energy in the, in the auditorium was um, so high and everyone was so excited. It was the first live performance in the auditorium since, you know, February of 2020 or whatever. Um, And it was, it was amazing. It was really incredible. Yeah. Um, That is, that is a real, you know, a really exciting thing to get back into that you know into that feeling I think I think most people feel that way yeah um and the other thing I wanted to to comment and then kind of segue with was um when fire shut up in my bones came to theaters a whole bunch of my cohort members and I you know we went to the theaters to see it and kind of the idea that um you know, this was the first opera the Met has put on by a black composer and all, all of that was very, um, I think compelling to a lot of people. And we were lucky that it was in a theater here in Bloomington. Um, but aside from attending performances or, uh, buying subscriptions, especially from an educational standpoint, is there a way to support this um this art form is there something that music educators in the public schools can be doing to kind of foster an interest in this um i'm thinking kind of ironically like i grew up a classical violinist but my first real introduction to opera was when actually the new york city opera was running a uh you know an educational clinic and they brought a bunch of kids in to play in the pit for a day and work with some of the singers Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was amazing. And that's kind of where I fell in love with it, but that was well into my amateur career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what can people do, whether they're educators or just, you know, civilians who can support the arts in some way? I don't know. It's, um, I think, you know, I think going as much as possible <laughs> is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good one. I think as educators, you know, introducing students to as wide a range of of performances um, as you possibly can. And those kind of interactive things, I think, are really, you know, are really wonderful. Um, And and also, I mean, one thing that I think music educators might find interesting is there's all this sort of interview content that has, you know, shown up across the web, like all these, um, you know, musicians and singers and, um, you know, different people in different, um, different, different areas of the opera world who've, who've done, um, you know, sort of these web, you know, webcasts and live, you know, interview performance, uh, not performances, but like really talking about what they do and where they come from and, and, you know, and what it means to them, like, you know, Angel Blue and her, what's it called? Um, Faithful Fridays, she does. And there's like, there, there are a whole bunch of them, you know, and these, you just, you sort of get this access and understanding of, of people uh, who actually make the music that you, you know, that you might not get otherwise. It's very, you know, it's very personal. It's very, um, and, and seems very meaningful um, to these, uh, to coming from these artists in this way. So that's, you know, that's one thing. Um, and I don't know, I mean, like, as music educators, um, I, think, I think music educators have a lot of um, opportunities now to really partner with arts organizations, because the arts organizations are starting to really understand that um, just like the drive-by performance is no longer really, um, you know, really what grabs um, kids. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it does, you know, you go to the Metropolitan Opera for the first time as, you know, as an eight-year-old and, you know, you get blown away or maybe you're bored to death. I don't know. But the, um, a lot of these um, arts organizations are really starting to craft programs in collaboration with educators um, to try and sort of make, uh, you know, make programs that will really will appeal to their students and and that their students can participate in. I mean, I remember when I was, um, when I was working at the Met um, in the, in the guild in the, in their education department, one of the things that, um, 
you know, after I had left there, one of the things that they really pioneered was this kind of make your own opera program where they would, they had teaching artists who would go into schools and work with students over like, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks, they would come in, um, you know, like every week or you know, a couple of times a week and work with students to create their own operas. Um, and so they would, you know, they would, they would write the, they would write the text, they would write the music, they would perform it, they would, you know, do all the, you know, directing and designing and everything. And, you know, really giving kids ownership of that, um, you know, of, of what that art form was. And, um, you know, you think about, like, you say you're, you know, you're from outside Philadelphia. Um, there was a, the, you know, Upper Philadelphia has been very, very uh, forward-looking in terms of creating this, this festival that they do now every, um, every fall. Um, and they do a lot of new pieces. And but one of, the, one of the pieces that they did quite early on in the festival was um, by uh, Daniel Bernard Rumain. It was called We Shall Not Be Moved. And it was, it was about the, the move house and the, you know, the huge, um, in Philadelphia, it was a, it was, it was a standoff between um, activists and police. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a, a very famous story in, you know, in Philadelphia, what happened to the move house. It got like, you know, bombed basically by um, helicopters. But the reason that that piece existed, and it was written by Daniel Bernard Rumain, and it was like, it had a, like a rap text and, um, but it came out of a, uh, of a hip hop workshop that um, Opera Philadelphia had done with local Philly students. And the kids had actually written texts and had written music about sort of different things about their life experience. And this piece that was performed at the um, at Opera Philadelphia's uh, festival that year, it was not written by students, but it was inspired by the ideas and the work that the students had done in a, in a workshop. So I think that, um, re, you know, for music educators to make a uh, make relationships with these arts institutions is just, you know, is crucial. And that's something that will, I think, really um, help that art form to, you know, to persevere. Do you have a follow up there, Kev? You looked like you were going to say something. I don't want to. No, I was. Um, okay. I was nodding because this was a very similar conversation we were having to using, using the local, uh, mm -hmm. professional musicians within the, this was a, a work conversation earlier today. So it's just Got it. coming up again. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask one more question and maybe it's, it's just for me, but it's a, <laughs> it's separate from the topic that we're leaving. Um, having finished your book, do you think, um, that there was a way the New York City Opera could have survived in any capacity. And Kev, maybe this is something we clip to, <laughs> to earlier in the podcast, but I'm just so curious on your thoughts. <laughs> well, um, I think that there were, the, the moment that um, the, the New York City Opera kind of, uh, there, there, there were, there was there was a moment where it it could have been saved, and that was the moment where you know Susan Baker decided that she was going to hire Gerard Mortier and um, you know offer him a sixty million dollar budget and um, shut down the um, you know shut down the opera house for a year and you know if if instead of doing that um, back in like you know two thousand six or two thousand seven or whatever it was I mean it's like I wrote this book a while ago. Um, <laughs> If, you know, I, I know I should have it all, but um, anyway, if, if instead of doing that, if she had brought together the, um, you know, the board and the staff and the stakeholders and everybody who ever you know, like really cared about the New York City Opera and had a really serious conversation about what this opera company was and who it was for, and after you know sixty odd years, who it was for now, and why it was still relevant, and why it should why it should still survive, and what would be the methodology for allowing it to survive? If that had happened, if that conversation had actually happened, and that was a, that would have been a very hard conversation um, because there were a lot of different a lot of different moving parts there. But if that conversation had happened, then the company might have been saved at that point. 
But instead, of course, you know, they did not do that. And they used their, um, their little endowment money as a piggy bank and just, and Susan Baker just like went totally off on her own bat and, you know, did what she thought was right. You know, only I alone can fix it. Right. So, um, you know, that was, I, I think that the damage that was done after that, um, sort of crazy, um, you know, and kind of overwhelmingly, um, mad decision or series of decisions. I think that it would have been very, very, very difficult to preserve that company, um, or to, I mean, to, to allow that company to, to continue to exist. It could not have continued to exist in its previous form as the second, you know, as the second company, um, of such a, of a, such a large size. I don't think that it was really possible. However, um, you know, once the, you know, once everything, you know, like was, you know, fell apart and um, Mortier didn't come and, you know, they had the, sh- they had the year shut down and you were, you came out of that with the, you know, with a much reduced um, company, if they had hired somebody other than George Steele um, and it would have been, it's a very small number of people, I think, who could, could, might have been able to rethink that company and bring enough people on board to create something that was actually workable, that had a vision and that had a, you know, had a reason for being and could, you know, and could bring all the people together who would be needed in order to make that happen. Um, George Steele was not that person. And, um, you know, as a result, you know, we know what happened, but I mean, I tend to be an optimist. Um, I, I'm not sure why, but you know, I am, and like, I can always kind of see alternative, um, you know, alternative scenarios, which may be sort of completely out to lunch and impossible, but, um, you know, with, with some incredibly heavy lifting, um, and some really sort of completely changed vision about what that company was. Um, it it could have survived, but it um, you know it wasn't likely. And you know, of course, that it was in fact resurrected. Yes. Um, you know, which and that I mean that that's a joke. I mean, I it's it is like what what it became under the you know the the person who you know basically bought the name and like tried to make it into some form of what it had been before. It's like, it, it is not, there is, there is nothing of the old New York city opera there except the name. That that's very interesting. That was kind of my next question, but I wasn't, I don't know enough about the current state of it that I, (laughs) yeah, I know enough about it. So, um, So kind of looking at our time, I just, I want to ask one wrap up question, which is, um, is there anything like particularly exciting that folks should be looking forward to in the opera world or something that you would encourage folks to um, go out and support or just something to highlight that you're particularly excited about? Well, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Um, and the fact that the, you know, that these opera companies are sort of, you know, coming back, um, you have Boston Lyric Opera is creating a film of the opera Svadba, which is about, you know, a five, you know, six, six young women preparing, well, five women preparing their friend who's the bride for the Serbian bride for her wedding. It's an acapella opera and it's being directed by Shura Barishnikov, who's, you know, Mikhail Barishnikov's daughter. She's choreographer. Um, and it's going to be a film. I just like, I can't wait to see that it's coming out in the winter. Um, you know, if you want to see fire shut up in my bones live, you can see it in Chicago, um, in the spring, they're going to do it. Um, and they're also doing, Chicago's also doing Proving Up, which is a fabulous piece by Missy Mazzoli. Um, that's just, that's happening in January. Um, and, um, you know, the, the first, uh, uh, whew, sorry, Mi- Michigan Opera Theater is doing um, Anthony Davis's X. Um, that's going to be in May. So that's, you know, that's very exciting to see. That piece was done in, um, was written in 1986 um, done by the New York city opera. Um, I, I saw it. I 
I saw it back in 1986. And, you know, like a, if you can imagine an opera about Malcolm X um, and how, like, you know, popular that was in 1986, um, not so much. And now this, you know, this piece is coming back. It's being, you know, it's being rethought and revised and performed by a whole bunch of companies, including the Met. So that's, you know, that's really exciting. Um, and I, I mentioned Missy Mazzoli and, you know, again, proving up, she's writing an opera for the Met. There are all these like interesting composers writing, you know, writing operas for the Met and, uh, you know, for other companies. Um, I'm not sure when this is, when this will be, uh, coming out, but the prototype festival, um, which is a very, you know, it's, this is the 10th anniversary of this opera music theater festival in, um, that happens every year in January in New York, um, always doing new funky sort of interesting stuff in small theaters. So that's, you know, absolutely worth seeing. And then the Spoleto Festival um, in Charleston in uh, May and June is doing a new opera by Rihanna, I never say her name right, Rihanna Gibbons, Giddens, Rihanna Giddens. Yes, um, I, I, my daughter will kill me. I never say her name right. But she's written an opera called Omar, which is about a, um, a Muslim scholar from what is now Senegal, who was, um, you know, abducted from Senegal in the, you know, during the time of the slave trade and was brought to, you know, brought to America and was a slave in America. And this is, this is a book that he wrote about it. And she's, you know, she's written an opera. So, you know, there's all sorts of great stuff. Um, Heidi, thank you very much for sitting and chatting with us. I know I, again, as the resident saxophonist, I know that I have the, the, the least depth of operatic knowledge, but I love hearing, especially the modern, the uh, more modern things coming in things. I love the, the ways that you can find the connections to give to the kids and then show them farther and farther back. So it's, it's nice to hear of that kind of revitalization and things happening. So I appreciate you sharing those with us and with our listeners as well. Well, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. I hope everybody goes to the opera and goes and watches all this stuff, which is available like on stage, online, um, you know, so much, so much is out there. And it sounds like there's also so much cool new stuff coming out. I mean, that whole list you just rattled off. I'm like sitting here taking notes. <laughs> Actually, one thing I forgot to mention is Opera Philadelphia um, created this channel, you know, for um, a, a streaming, a digital streaming channel. And they've done a lot of these sort of smaller pieces um, that are created, you know, sort of together with the, you know, the, um, the, the composer and the filmmaker create these pieces. And those are, I mean, you can watch those anytime. Those are great. So, you know, even if you don't, if you, even if you're not in a city that has, you know, has an opera company, um, you can, you can watch those. We can certainly link that in the bio for the episode. So people can find that as well. Uh-huh. Great. Sure. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time and going through emails and all that kind of stuff that it took us to, to get the, to this point. But um, we really, we really appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.